This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Everyone, once again, to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashio Christie. This is the radio station where we help you learn how to live a happy life, where we give you the ideas and philosophy that lead to a fulfilled and abundant life. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks, and today's topic is going to be about the relevance of God's Word. We've been covering the issue of the accuracy of the Bible and the transmission of the Bible, and So now that we know that it's reliable, that we can trust it, what relevance is that to me personally? So that's what we're going to talk about. Please be sure and check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And you can also listen to archived shows there, or you can find us on iTunes and listen to podcasts there. Uh, Also, don't forget to check out the Ratio Christie website, which is ratiochristi.org. We have a couple of guests today, so I guess I'll bring them in now. They've been guests here before in in the studio, although we're all three calling in today. So uh, let me introduce the audience once again to Jen Quinn. Hello, everyone. And Jesse Richardson. Hi, everyone. So... Um, You guys are here to help me get through the show in absence of Kirk Hastings. So he's taking a couple weeks off. He'll be back in about two, three weeks. But we really enjoyed having you on the last time. So I guess what I'll have you do is just refresh everybody and tell everybody your background. And Jen, you want to start? Sure. Well, I graduated from Stockton College in December and just help out with Ratio Christie, the apologetics club at Stockton. And right now I'm currently studying to get my certificate from Biola University in apologetics and planning on going to grad school soon. Very good. Jesse? Um, I go to Stockton right now where I'm the vice president of our Rashu Christie Club there, and I just completed my certificate in apologetics through Biola University. Oh, great. Congratulations. Oh, we should have a party. (laughs) We should. (laughs) There you go. So, all right. Well, to start things off, I'll do the normal routine, which is to have a quote of the week. And we've been going through a series of quotes by C.S. Lewis. So this is my favorite quote. I think this is my favorite. I have this one memorized because I use it a lot. His, this is his statement about Christianity. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So that's a really great quote. That's my favorite quote by C.S. Lewis. Uh, we also have an email. So this was a bit of a long email. I'm not sure uh, we have to try to make this kind of interesting sounding for the audience So I'll start out, and then we'll just cover it as long as we think it's interesting. So he covers uh, some different topics, and I tried my best to answer some of his questions. But there's about two or three different email exchanges. So this is from a listener by the name of Mike, and he says, Hello, Keith and Mike, which 
Dr. Mike Larrakis hasn't been a co-host for a while, although he has filled in. So maybe some of the podcasts he was listening to, he heard Dr. Mike speaking. But anyway, he continues, I have a close friend who is worried about my soul. She is impressed with your podcasts and asks that I listen to 10 of them to see what I might gain from your presentations. This is also a kind of abbreviated report to her about my impressions. If I have misconstrued your positions or misstated your stance, I apologize. I listened to 16 and agree with much of the scholarship concerning the historicity and literacy of the Bible. Okay, so that covered some of the more recent podcasts that we've done. Uh, Then it continues, I remain unconvinced by the attempts to characterize the explanations of the resurrection and the existence of God as evidence. So a couple of issues there. The resurrection, I assume he's talking about how we debunked a lot of the explanations for the resurrection, you know, the um, missing tomb, the twin theory, the Jesus didn't die theory, uh, all those, and we we debunk those, so apparently he doesn't think those explanations are good enough. He says, one is still required to step into the unknown to accept the existence of the supernatural. I believe the points you made about the supernatural aspects of Christianity do a disservice to people who are being deluded by the factual and emotional manipulation of the podcasts. It diminishes the ability to think rationally or engage in rational discussion. I believe this leads to negative consequences to society in general. Okay, so that's quite a charge. We are actually harming people by doing the podcasts. He says, even more disturbing and dangerous in proportion to the scope of your listenership is your light, even glib treatment of climate change and the human contribution to it. You are ignoring overwhelming and mounting evidence. I would ask that you please reconsider your position and stop. Your podcasts show that you are thoughtful and intelligent people. You seem to have a comprehensive knowledge of both sides of the theist-slash-atheist argument. I can present no more material than that to which you have been exposed. I am not trying to dissuade you from your religious beliefs. That will come with time. right? Because atheists are always on the right side of history, right? I am reporting my impressions and thoughts. However, I am trying to stop your campaign against climate control. So, uh, ladies, any comments? Oh, wait a minute. We have a P.S. I forgot about that. P.S. He com- Now, both of you went to the Atheist Rally in Washington, D.C., so this is a comment about that. He says, the good without God posters at the rally are a much delayed response to the constant harangue from theists towards atheists that there can be no morality without religion or God. I believe Christians can claim primary focus for your C.S. Lewis citation. And that was actually a quote from C.S. Lewis, I think it was two weeks ago, where Lewis talked about those who claim to be as good as someone. Anyone who claims to be as good as someone else only does so because they know that they are, in fact, inferior. So the expert ball player does not go to another expert ball player and say, I am as good as you. But the bad ball player does go to the expert ball player and say, I am as good as you. So if you're actually good at something, you it, it, it never crosses your mind to try to claim that you are as good as somebody who's actually better than you. So uh, any comments on that? You guys were uh, you guys were there. You saw the signs. So is that right? Christians are always haranguing, he says, haranguing atheists that there can be no morality without religion or God. 
I was just watching a debate recently on that subject with Sam Harris and William Lane Craig, and that's exactly what they were talking about. Can we have morality without God? And William Lane Craig was saying, um, the attack isn't that atheists can't be moral people. They can still be moral people. It's just that there's no objective moral standard. How can you measure how moral of a person you are if there's no objective standard that you're measuring yourself up against? Right, exactly. So, so actually, he's presenting a straw man argument, right? He's pretending that this is the view of Christians when it's not the view of Christians. Christians do not think that you cannot be moral without God or without religion or without Christianity, right? So we know that everyone has a conscience. They have a conscience that was given to them by God. They were designed to be good people. So when we find people who are good, even though they are not religious or of a different religion, that doesn't surprise us at all. So let's see. I guess let's address this issue of God as evidence. What do you think about that? He said that he didn't agree with the arguments for the existence as evidence. Now, I took that to mean that he's saying those are not evidence. So, what do you think? Are the arguments for the existence of God evidence, or are they not evidence? Was he talking about, like, the cosmological argument? Apparently, he's listened to a bunch of the podcasts where we talked about the existence of God. So, I assume that he listened to, like, the cosmological argument and other things. Those aren't really my favorite arguments, but I do think that they lead one to believe that there has to be a creator of some sort. Okay. So you think they are evidence or they're not evidence? I believe they are evidence. Yeah. I mean, what's the definition of evidence, right? Jesse, I bet you didn't murder anybody today in Seattle, did you? No. But weren't you in Seattle today, Jesse? <laughs> you were in Seattle today, weren't you? Is that evidence? <laughs> yes, that is evidence, right? Because evidence is anything that, given the background information, makes something more probable. Okay, so let's think of an example. We're talking about someone who we don't know. His name is Bill Smith. And all we know about Bill Smith is that he goes, he's a freshman in college. Okay, now we're asked the question, does Bill Smith drink? Okay, so, so given what we know, that he's a male, goes to college, he's a freshman in college in the United States, what is the probability that he drinks alcohol? High or low? High. Okay, it's high. Would you agree? Uh, I'm looking at Jen. Okay. Yes. This is radio, so we have no video camera. <laughs> Shaking solo. my head, forgetting that people can't hear my That's head. right. Now, let's add a new piece of information to that background information. And let's, let me tell you that Bill comes from a strict Mormon family and is a Mormon himself. And now I ask you again, does Bill drink alcohol? What do you think? Do you, do you think that that new information is evidence that would change the probability of the question? Yes. Yeah, of course, right? Of course. Now it becomes less probable that he drinks alcohol. It becomes more probable that he doesn't drink alcohol. That's the definition of evidence. So evidence is anything that changes the probability about a, an occurrence. So if you sit in a trial, people are going to give you evidence. They're going to give you things that are going to change your decision about what probably happened. You, know, you have to decide, did this person murder this person, or if it was a car accident, is this person at fault, right? And so the lawyers are just going to present facts and arguments as evidence to try to get you to change your position about what the probability of the guilt or innocence of somebody is. Does that make sense? That it does. Yeah. All right. Let's see. I don't know how far we want to go into this. Let's see, I guess. Okay, well, I tell you what, I did answer some of his questions. Oh, you know, the other thing about global warming. 
why do we talk about global warming? This isn't a show about global warming or cultural issues. You know, I did go to Chick-fil-A, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not the kind of thing we typically talk about. What we talk about is uh, how Christianity is beneficial to people, to society, and how we can know it's true. So, but where does then does global warming fit in here? I bring global warming to the table because I think it's a great example of some of the misguidedness that there is in the science community and how people can be fooled into believing things more because of their own personal biases, political beliefs. And, you know, this is called confirmation bias when someone, say, is politically left wing and then they they see evidence that shows them that people on that disagree with them are wrong and bad. They're like, quote unquote, destroying the earth. And any evidence that shows that that's much more likely to be believed because human beings are just that way. We we're much more likely to believe something that adds and confirms what we already believe. So this is why on this show we did went into great lengths to do a, a long series on critical thinking so that we can not fall into those traps. And studies about confirmation bias have shown that if you do practice and you do try not to have confirmation bias, you can do much better at it and almost virtually eliminate it. So that's a really good thing. And so we want to encourage people to think critically and examine, you know, is what somebody's saying, does that really make sense? Is it logical? So that's why we talk about it. It's not that we don't believe that the earth is getting hotter. Um, We know historically that the climate changes over time. So there's really nothing new about that. And so we happen to be getting hotter. Okay, it's really hot today. And this year might be one of the hottest years on record, at least in the United States, or maybe even worldwide. And so what is the point of that. So the big question about global warming is, is it caused by people, right? I guess you guys have heard this argument before or this issue. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is there evidence that it's coming from people? Well, yes, there is. Is there evidence that it's not coming from people? Yes, there is. So the issue is about confirmation bias and about how people will choose to believe only part of the evidence because it's what they want to hear or what they believe. And that's why we talk about it on this show, because in the same way, atheists do the same thing or non-Christians do the same thing. They hear things that seem to support their view. And so they are much more likely to believe those, even if they're illogical, even if they are fallacious. And so what we want to do is point out those things that are fallacious, why they're fallacious. Like I'm still on the topic of global warming. One of the strong evidences, and you ladies have probably heard it, that there is global warming caused by man is the correlation between carbon dioxide increasing and heat, right? So temperatures are rising and it seems to be that carbon dioxide is also increasing, right? Yeah. You've heard this? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, then good, because then maybe our listeners have probably heard this too. Okay. This falls into a fallacious way of thinking called correlation is not causation. And this happens in medicine all the time. People will give a new medicine to someone and then they get better. And then they will automatically assume that that medicine caused the person to get better. And that's a very dangerous road to go down. So even though carbon dioxide is increasing, how do we know that it's not the increase in temperature that is causing the carbon dioxide to increase? How do we know that it's not the opposite, that increasing temperature increases carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, in fact, we actually do know that that is the, that 
increasing temperatures do increase the amount of carbon dioxide because just like you have a can of Coke and if it's a warm day, does the carbon dioxide stay in the Coke or does it does the Coke go flatter faster on a warm day? This is not a hard question. <laughs> I assume you have drank, drank Coke before. Yes. Have you had a Coke at the beach? No, but I have had a Coke explode in my car before in the heat. <laughs> so that's what I'm thinking. Okay. As long as you don't relive, relive the experience, we're cool. Um, so carbon dioxide, if you raise the temperature of a liquid, it forces the carbon dioxide out. This is why we, well, partly because it tastes good cold too, but it also helps to keep the carbon dioxide in if you keep the drink cold. So this is also true with the oceans. The oceans, when they cool down, they absorb carbon dioxide. And when they heat up, they release carbon dioxide. Well, we have a whole lot of water around us, right? Most of the earth is water. So when the earth heats up, the oceans release tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide. So, and, and it's enough that it actually is able to explain the entire change in carbon dioxide levels. So that's just one example. Well, let's uh, remind everybody that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we're going to be talking about the relevance of God's Word. And we have with us in the studio Jen Quinn and Jesse Richardson. Say hi, ladies. Hi. All right. Let's see now. Let me just, before we jump to a new topic, let me just see if there are a couple more points that I wanted to bring out. I guess um, since we answered most, let me let me uh, give you his answer. I think this is his answer here. He says, thank you for your response, Keith. I comprehend most of what you say, but continue to have a hard time understanding. I don't agree with your conclusions and don't expect that we will arrive at any common ground in the immediate future. And for those who are just joining us, this is an email we got from Mike. So he says, it's not my job to prove God does not exist. I have not seen any proof that he does. Wondrous nature, cosmology, ontology, and all other apologetic arguments considered, the existence of God does not seem to be amenable to demonstration or refutation, but rests on faith alone. I don't agree with the ad hominem characterization, uh, and this is where I accused him of, of ad hominem. If I said, this person is an osteopath, therefore his conclusions about X would be discounted, I believe it would be ad hominem. I am probably more guilty or egregious of value judgments. To be a little more clear and a little less egregious about what I meant, I think that any religion that combines or condemns people to a manufactured hell for not accepting an unsubstantiated salvation system is being factually and emotionally manipulative, your protestations of evidence notwithstanding. Concerning your last paragraph, I understand the distinction. You would probably charge that these sign carriers, with hubris at least, I would probably agree. Do you not see your own hubris, even arrogance, complicated though it might be? To those who do not agree with you, it comes off as affected humility. Well, actually, I don't know. I've, that'd be an interesting comparison, whether hubris sounds like affected humility or not. But uh, hubris typically doesn't sound like any kind of humility that I know of. So anyway, any, uh, any comments on this, ladies? He talks about, um, it's not my job to prove that God does not exist. It would be hard to do. I mean, I've yet to see an atheist who can prove that God does not exist. Right. I couldn't prove that God didn't exist when I was an atheist. So, I mean, if anybody can prove it, 
that would be great. Now, I'd be really interested in talking to them. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. um, so this is probably, you think this is why atheists try to push that they don't have a burden of proof? So they have a position, but they don't require any evidence to support it? Oh, definitely. I think it's, I think it's far easier for them to put the, uh, you know, to make burden us have to, yeah, the burden of proof on us because mm-hmm. they know that they can't prove that. Right. They're right. Right. Yeah, they can't prove it. They do have evidence, um, but it's fairly weak evidence. Probably the, the most common one that they try to use is the argument from evil. So there's so much, there's too much pain and suffering in the world for there to be a God. So that would be an argument, that would be evidence that God doesn't exist. Um, we've covered this in the past on shows, and so if you're interested in this particular problem, then you can uh, listen to the podcast because there are very substantial answers to this question. Another thing actually would be evolution. Evolution is an attempt to falsify the existence of God. We're basically saying that God can't do uh, or isn't doing something, right? God isn't producing uh, new life. He's not, he didn't create life. He didn't create the species that we see. These can be produced naturally. So that would be an argument. Therefore, since he didn't do that particular thing, that then makes it less likely that he exists. So that would be a, another argument. And, um, you know, we've actually been over the evolution topic quite a bit also on the show. So it's one of those things. It's kind of like, Uh, Believing in a perpetual motion machine, you know, perpetual motion machines simply don't work. You you cannot get more energy out of a system than you put into it, and you cannot get more information out of a system than is already there. So it's actually impossible. The macro evolution that is described by atheists and others simply can't happen. It's like believing in perpetual motion. It's like believing in magic. You know, these things are impossible. They're absolutely impossible. For it to occur, it would require a miracle. It would require divine intervention. And surprise, surprise, that's exactly what the evidence shows, that there has been an increase in information over time. And it's obviously supernatural because naturally there is no possibility of information increasing, just like there's no possibility of a perpetual motion machine. And it doesn't matter how many engineers talk about the perpetual motion machine or have their PhDs and claim how, no, it really does. This time it really does produce more energy than goes into it. Our our knowledge about the universe is that such things do not happen. And we know that the universe is decaying. Things are getting worse and worse. Second law of thermodynamic. So we know these things simply cannot happen uh, without miraculous intervention. Jen, you were asking me before the start of the show about, since we're on the topic of evolution, about where does Neanderthal fit into the situation? Yes, I was. I was just having a conversation with someone like a half hour before the radio show, and that was one of the things that he was stuck on, was how we explain Neanderthal if macroevolution is impossible, how we make sense of those fossils that have been found. Right. So, a very good question, and Again, it's the kind of thing that we haven't typically talked about because on the show we try not to take a side as to is the earth old or is it young. There's a lot of disagreement about that. There's a lot of evidence on both sides. In fact, you know, the entire show could endlessly be presenting the evidence on both sides and there would just never be an end to it. It's that massive of an amount of data. It ultimately doesn't really affect the real questions. I mean, for instance, Large portions of Christianity and probably the vast majority of Christians believe that the earth is old. 
And I don't think that disqualifies them from being Christians. So, you know, they believe that God exists. They believe that the Bible is inspired. They believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and is a substitute for their sins. Um, So I don't see that as a um, necessary ingredient. And certainly it's not in any of the creeds, right? You must believe in a young earth, right? That's not uh, in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or anything. So, But it still does raise some interesting questions. What do we do with these fossils like Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon Man or that kind of thing? And so you actually get a different answer depending on whether you believe in old earth or young earth. So just to be brief about it, if you believe that the earth is 4.5 billion years old and then these earlier hominids came along and then God maybe within 10,000 years ago created Adam and Eve – as special and distinct creation. Then what you do is you look at the difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, and you say it's very different. You know, it's they're really, really different. And so God did something completely different by creating Adam and Eve Homo sapiens. So that's a sufficient answer for people. The young Earth creationists are compressing the time frame of the Earth. It's not four and a half billion years old. It's six thousand years old. All of the geologic ages fit in, or large ones, except for the Pleistocene, I think it is, fit into the Noahic flood, the flood of Noah. And then you have, after the flood, you have the early and late Pleistocene eras. And this is where we find, these are the two areas where we find the fossils of other hominids. Okay, so, for example, Homo erectus. So, according to the young Earth scientists who study this, and study the fossils, paleontologists and things, Homo erectus would, that accounts for uh, Noah and all his descendants would be Homo erectus until you get up to, then you have Neanderthal as being a, a, a branch from the Tower of Babel that went into Europe. So you have, and because they separated from the main genetic information, they had less of the genetic information, and so they adapted to their climate with a smaller amount of genetic information, and so they adapted and became Neanderthals. So then you had Homo sapiens, the species Homo sapiens is really not technically a species like a subspecies because these species interbreed coming out of Africa and basically interbreeding with all of the other hominids like Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon Man, even Homo floriensis, which is the little hobbit guys the from Indonesia, the three-foot-tall hobbit people, and essentially replacing them so that now the entire world is covered by only Homo sapiens, so our current subspecies of human being. So the interesting thing is that if we were to meet Noah or maybe even Abraham, they would not have similar bone structure to us. They would look essentially like cavemen. And, you know, there's really nothing unusual about this. I I hope this doesn't strike our listeners as being really odd. I mean, if you understand the way genetics works and the way that adaptation works and all of the stuff that's actually proved by science and by the things that we can actually study, like fruit fly experimentation, growth of bacteria over a 20-year period, you know, to where we get multiple, multiple generations that account for vast amounts of, quote-unquote, evolutionary time. These things actually can happen very rapidly, and there are many, many examples of very rapid evolutionary change, including 
for example, dog breeding. If you take dogs and you breed them, and instead of having natural selection, you have intelligent selection, you actually breed for specific characteristics, you can rapidly change the characteristics in dogs because DNA in individuals and in species, it has more information than what it takes to make a single type of animal. So there's a gene pool. All dogs share a gene pool with other dog-like animals that and they can interbreed and that gene pool gets the gene genetic information gets passed around. Well, if a dog has, uh, let's say a wolf-like dog, has the genetic information to make a chihuahua, it also has the genetic information to make a Great Dane, how come it looks like a wolf? Well, because many types of genes are turned on and turned off. And this is the whole realm of the epigenome, which we've only really been discovering the past 10 years or so, that turns on and off. This is, what, this is the control mechanism over the DNA that turns it on and off so that you can activate certain things. And even the environment, the epigenome will sample the environment for things like food sources if it knows that you're getting food from a certain type of maybe all of a sudden the individual organism is eating food that's much richer in a certain enzyme or a certain carbohydrate, let's say. The epigenome will start to turn on genetic genes that actually will help the organism to digest that particular type of carbohydrate. And then this then gets passed on through the germ cells into the offspring. Uh, and that's part of what controls speciation. Okay, my lecture's over. You guys have been really <laughs> good about listening to me. So, any comments on that? And I learned a lot. I learned a lot too. I'm not a lecture on genetics. <laughs> and you guys are you're a college graduate and you're senior. Yeah. And do, don't they teach you this in school? No, not really. <laughs> my major political was political science, right. so yeah. I'm criminal justice, so okay. we didn't really need to learn too much about that. Ah, uh, the problems with the university. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we make specialists, but even if they did cover some of this science, you probably would have gotten it only from an atheistic viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and ladies... Jessica Richardson, hi. And Jennifer Quinn, hello. And we're going to start talking about the relevance of the Bible. Why is the, re- is the Bible relevant? So, ladies, please jump in as we get into this topic. As I said before, we talked about the reliability of the Bible. We talked about how well it's been transmitted down through time. So we'd like to talk about now, okay, so what? See, sometimes this information, we just automatically think, oh, well, if you prove it's true, then somebody is going to accept it or adopt it. And that just isn't necessarily true. I think it was Francis Bacon who said that we must first make Christianity appealing before we prove that it's true. Because just because something is true doesn't mean that you're going to adopt it. So just because we prove that the Bible is reliable, that the Bible has been transmitted correctly, that it's been inspired by God, doesn't mean that people are actually going to pay attention to it. They have to know how it's relevant to their lives. So that's what we're going to talk about in the remaining time. And this information we've uh, culled from a couple of books. I'd like to give credit to the authors, The Unshakable Truth by Josh and Sean McDowell, True for You But Not for Me by Paul Copan, who was a guest on the show. Look up that podcast. And Saving Leonardo by Nancy Piercing, who I would just die if she became a 
guest on the show, that would be terrific. I would probably be all speechless and stuff. It'd be the same as if, if William Lane Craig was on. I would be like, oh. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. So what we want to talk about to begin with is about the idea of moral truth and about the idea of relativism today, because this poses an interesting problem for the Bible and how the Bible has been uh, looked at in the last, say, 100 years or so. Today, I think, I think it's safe to say that you can say that people have been conditioned to believe that moral and spiritual claims are true only if you choose to believe them, right? Would you, ladies, agree? Is that what you find in your community of friends? People will believe, they think that things are true if you believe that it's true. If you choose to believe it, then it becomes true for you. If you don't, then it doesn't. Exactly. Relativism is the spirit of the sage yeah. right now. I would agree with that. All right. So if I, and, and do you think this is infecting the church? Oh, think, definitely. Yeah? Why definitely. do you say? I, well, I think that a lot of Christians, especially at least I think at our age, they don't really care per se if Christianity is true. They're going to pick and choose which of the moral things they want to stick with from it. And All right. if it works for them, that's good, but they're not going to, you know, pick and say anything to other people part. about it because mm-hmm. they don't want to offend other people. And there really is no okay. truth, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so then, so then they might believe, so if you ask them a Christian, quote unquote Christian, is premarital sex wrong? They would answer. Maybe for some people, for others, it's not, is probably their response. Right. That, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they might even say, I think it's wrong, but who am I to judge? Exactly. There's a mm-hmm. lot of that. Right. And this is judge. coming from Christians, right? Exactly. So, in fact, the problem is that they might at one time say, yeah, I agree that it's wrong for me. And then six months from now, they get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and all of a sudden, that thing that they believed before now doesn't really seem to apply because they're in a new situation. Now it's not true for them anymore. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right? So what do you think this does for the power of God's word then? I think it makes it kind of pointless. I mean, it diminishes the power of what the Bible says. Absolutely. Right? I mean, why? It's just picking and choosing the verses that make you feel most comfortable, that you like the best, that fits in with your version of Christianity. And that definitely does a great disservice to us as Christians all around because then, I mean, especially lately, there's been a lot of, oh, well, Christians are cherry pickers. They like to pick this verse, but not that verse. And they don't live things out. And the Christian church is just so hypocritical. And that's right. become a really big problem that we have to be able to stand up against. So so what you're saying is that non-Christians can recognize this? They recognize that the Christians are being hypocritical and just picking and choosing? Oh, absolutely. Now, the funny thing is that it's the non-Christians are doing the same thing, right? I mean, they're just picking and choosing what yes. they choose to say is right or wrong also. And that also changes with time depending on if it's convenient for them or not, yes. right? And so the problem is then... You know, when you're filling out your tax returns and there's no one around and you're there by yourself and you realize that, oh, I could just put this down, this number down. I don't have to actually tell the truth. And there's a reason, there's a benefit. I can actually use the computer and figure out that if I do this, it pays me $500. So you can uh, change your morals real quick uh, that way. If you've got this kind of uh, view that, Morals and spiritual things are relative. So what this has done is create a kind of a two-story world, and this is really described well in Nancy Piercy's book, Saving Leonardo's, and I really highly recommend it to our listeners to read this book. But basically, 
it says that there are two ways of looking at truth, okay? The one is the Christian way, all right, that says that truth is defined by God for everyone. It's objective. It's universal, okay? It's known through discovering God, through knowing who God is, and through his word, because uh, his word describes who he is, and his word explains right and wrong. But also, it's not that different from how we discover more basic facts, like scientific facts, by exploring the world around us. So truth is discovered. It's something that we learn. It's something that's real and relates to the reality around us. The other view says that the individual decides, that the individual, it's subjective, it's situational, you make a decision based on the situation. Truth is known by simply choosing to believe it, right? So in relativism, you have this interesting situation then. If somebody does something in relativism, if somebody does something wrong or immoral, that what they've really done is offend someone else's idea of right and wrong, right? So you think that it's wrong to cheat on taxes, but, you know, for me, it, it just works out. That's the way it is. And, and so for me, it's okay to do that. If I do that, I know it might offend you. It might offend you because it offends your idea of right and wrong, right? Well, what's so bad about that, right? I, so, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of like all the, the kids who go behind the school to smoke cigarettes. You know, we're kind of all in collusion, because I'm not going to report on you that you're not in class as long as you don't report me, right? So I know you're doing something bad, but that's okay with me. Just don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. So we kind of got this club going. The problem is that the club has now infected the entire school. So it's not just the kids who go be behind the building to smoke cigarettes. The entire school now is saying, let's all be bad together. How are we going to be bad? I won't say anything about you, your badness if you promise not to say anything about my badness. So when I do something wrong, okay, I know you think it's wrong. Just shut up about it. Just don't judge me, right? But in Christianity, in the real world, in the world that God created, the world that exists and has real morals, then when somebody is unethical, who does it offend? God. It offends God, right? It's not just that if I murder you, okay, I've offended you, I murdered you, you were harmed by what I did. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that. You also offended God. You broke God's law. It wasn't, it wasn't um, you know, a convenient agreement that we had, let's not kill each other, and then I broke that agreement. No, this is a command from God, don't kill each other, right? He didn't design you to murder each other. He designed you to live in relationship with him. So when you break those rules, you violate who you are as a person, who you are, were designed to be, and you offend God because he made you to be that way. Uh, ladies, give me, a, give me an ex- uh, definition of truth. What is truth? I'm like putting us on the spot. Um, <laughs> truth is the actual description of reality, right? Perfect. Like Perfect. That. You paid attention. Keep used it this morning in a Sunday school class. Right. And, so. and that was good. Though. I like that one. Actually, good. this was talked about also in Ratio Christie meetings at Stockton, too. We, did, we went over this like <laughs> multiple times. So, yeah, objective truth, right? And it's there waiting to be discovered. So it's what's really out there. If I tell you that there is a dog sitting on the step outside the front door, is that a true statement or not? 
If he's there, then yes. Yes, yes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> if he's there, then it's true. Oh, but I believe it in my mind. It's my truth. It's really and for me, there's a dog there. No, no, <laughs> not true. So this view of truth, and it's something that Christianity has held for 2,000 years. This is not new to Christianity. The other view, the view of relativism, moral and spiritual relativism, that is new to the world. That has been maybe 100 years, possibly you could go back no more than 200, I would say, to this view of relativism that truth is not real. It's something that we make up. And because of that, it's because of the difference we stand a chance to lose things like science. Christianity, its foundation, its basis in this objective view of truth, that truth can be discovered in the world, truth can be discovered by reading the Bible and learning about God, laid the foundation for the university, for education, for science itself. And without that, we wouldn't have modern science. And we actually stand to lose modern science, it will drift away, it will become unimportant if there is no such thing as objective truth, then what is the point of spending all your days examining how leaves work or how an insect can fly? None of that matters if there's no such thing as truth. So the the way that Nancy Piercy describes it is that they live people live in this two story world where there is facts on one side and values on the other, or science at the day-to-day level and religion uh, up above it. And that's the kind of stuff that you make up. And it, it, it's in our movies, it's in our books, um, it's in our TV shows, you know, trust in yourself, look to your heart, what's the real you? And, and what is the real you? The real you is whatever I happen to be thinking today, whatever I feel like today. So whatever kind of slimy, disgusting thought happens to be wandering through my head today, that's the real me. And so I ought to just embrace it. No, it doesn't sound like a good plan to me. Um, in fact, it's a great description of a sociopath, somebody who just uh, does whatever they feel like doing. Lives by his own. I was just listening to Greg Kokel's lecture on moral relativism, and he was saying the same thing. The way you like examine the worth of a moral point of view is what kind of moral hero does it produce, and relativism produces a sociopath, someone who does what he wants, when he wants, without any concern for anyone else's well-being. Exactly, so. exactly. So the Bible then is relevant in that way, in, in the way that it shows true truth. It's a guidebook to what's really true about morals, about spirituality, about God. So it's relevant because from it we find truth, we find relationship with God. But also think about God is like a father to us. And we can think about the way our parents acted with us. Did our parents give us rules and guidelines? Did they tell you, don't reach up on the stove while mommy's cooking, right? Did they tell you, clean your room? Did they tell you, no, you cannot have the car keys today? Did they tell you, brush your teeth, right? Boy, what meanies. They must have hated you. Wow. No, I think, you know, parents do these things because they care about their children, because they love them, right? They're not doing it because they want to harm us or not, uh, you know, for us not to have fun, right? They're doing it because they value us. So when God tells us flee sexual immorality, he's doing that not because he's a cosmic killjoy. He's doing that because he knows that it leads to emptiness and it leads to frustration and it leads to depression. So 
He's telling us these things for our own good. And there's a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Yeah, if you'll pull that up. We've got about three minutes left, so we'll we'll mention that. And in the meantime, I'll keep talking because I want to get across the point that the Bible is for our own good. And um, God says that his commands are not burdensome. There are two things then that God provides for us if we get into relationship with him, if we accept his son as our propitiation and we accept the sacrifice that he gave for us and we come into relationship with God. He gives us provision and he gives us, uh, no, a shield. Protection. Protection. Thank you. I was going to say shield. (laughs) I don't know why I couldn't think of that. So he gives us protection, right? So a lot of the things that he tells us are for our own protection. And they also are to provide things for us. So he wants to provide an abundant life. He wants to protect us from the harms that are out there. One of the books, Josh McDowell's book, talked about a story about a, a boy named Greg who lived across the street from a man who had a pool, and he had a fence around this pool. And he had never been over there before, um, never been invited to swim in the pool. And I guess he kind of thought that maybe that fence was there to keep him from having fun. So late one night, he and his girlfriend climbed the fence. And the last thing he heard as he was jumping off of the diving board was his girlfriend screaming that there was no water in the pool. And he hit his head and paralyzed, was paralyzed for the rest of his life. Now, he might have thought that that fence was there because that greedy guy across the street didn't want to share his goodies and didn't want to provide uh, happiness for him who lived across the street. But in reality, it was there to protect him. And that's the way things are. God gives us rules to live by. They're there for our provision and for our protection. And we need to get to know his word, and it is relevant to our lives. Well, thank you, ladies, for being here with me today. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Uh, Send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com and join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.